praise in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. The following is a sermon recently preached at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this message. So today, the clock turns and the story continues. Today the plot turns because if you remember when I started this series, I was talking about the chiasm in Esther, how there's a a corresponding event at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, and then closer to the middle, the next two sections. At the beginning we have the Feast of Ahasuerus, at the end we have the Feasts of Purim, and and then next we have Haman's plot in the beginning, and next before the end we have Haman's downfall, and then next after Haman's plot we have Esther's first banquet, and then... After this turning chapter, we have Esther's second banquet. And right in the middle of the chiasm, we have the king's sleepless night. The hinge of the story. In the, in the hinge of the story where the plot turns, we have Mordecai honored. And we have Haman humiliated. Remember that the theme of this book is God's providence in the midst of overwhelming odds. So far in this story, Haman has been granted every wish and whim of his from the king. So far, Esther has been plucked from obscurity and thrust onto the royal scene. So far, Mordecai and the Jews have been faithful, but they've been sentenced to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated by Haman's vindictiveness. And today, we are introduced to the king's sleepless night. The Hebrew for the king's uh, sleep, his sleep literally fled from him. It ran away from him. The sleep fled from the king. So he had the chronicles of the kingdom read to him. Nothing like some history to put one to sleep. Well, the reading regarded the attempt on the king's life by Big Ben and Teresh, which Mordecai had reported and saved the king. And the king's interest in rewarding Mordecai was aroused. So he asked Haman how to reward one who deserves it. And Haman's answer was typical. It was exemplary of how all wicked men think. His answer presupposed his own greatness and his own worthiness. He thought in his heart, who might the king desire to honor more than myself? Was this justifiable? I mean, he had been given the royal ring. He had been given a station above all the other princes in Persia. He had access to the king. Only six nobles in all the land were given this honor. He'd been made the object of worship and honor in the streets. And just the night before, he'd been invited to dine with the king and the queen, him alone. According to every external measurement, there was no way to foresee what was about to take place in the land of Persia. Remember, he had just received the advice of his wise men. He had sought the blessing of the stars in his councils. He'd done everything right as far as he knew. But Haman would have done well, as would all fools, to remember a couple of Proverbs. First, 
Pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. And second, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. The king's whim is the law. You cannot be playing with that. If you do that, you are playing with fire. But Haman did not remember these proverbs. And God was using Haman as a warning to any who would seek to destroy his people in his story. Chapter 6 is the initiation of the reversal of Haman's and Mordecai's fortunes. Chapter 6 is the beginning of Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Now God is sovereign. What this means is that the Lord is in charge of everything. He uses minor events to change great things. The Lord caused Ahasuerus' sleep to flee from him. It's a minor thing. The king just couldn't sleep. The Lord arranged that the reading that evening would be the plot of Big Than and Teresh. Lord, the Lord arranged that the king's heart would be turned to bless Mordecai. And God did all of this for his own glory. It wasn't because of Mordecai's greatness. It wasn't because Mordecai was such a wonderful guy. God did it for his own glory, and God did it that way because God is sovereign over the story. He is the author. He is the playwright. He is the one who determines the end from the beginning. And he gives meaning to every event that takes place. The doctrines of Reformed Christianity refer to God's sovereignty over the happenings in the world as providence. Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number 27 answer is this. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11's answer says this, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And these are the doctrines. These are, these are summaries of what the Bible teaches about God's providence. But it's all throughout the Bible. For instance, turn in your Bibles to Daniel 4. Verses 34 and 35. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon had a dream, and Nebuchadnezzar had to go out into the wilderness for seven times. And at the end of the time, starting at verse 34, Daniel 4, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives 
forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, we read that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, he predestined us to adoption according to the good pleasure of his will. In verse 5. In verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is in control of all things, even the things that appear happenstance. And Job gives us a good summary of God's sovereignty in Job chapter 12, which I'd like you to turn to also. Job chapter 12, starting at verse 13. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the peoples of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grow up in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. God is sovereign. Jesus said that even the sparrows are dependent on God's providence, and even the hairs on your head are numbered. So God is sovereign over the story. He's sovereign over the story of the world. In God's story of the world, man is a big part of it. But man's part in the story is, is either for or against. Man has only two options in this story, which God is telling. He's telling a story in all of our lives. He's turning each of us either from our natural state as his enemies into his adopted sons, or he's turning us from a seed form of rebellion to the full and mature version of it. In which it is his will to destroy and punish his enemies in this world and ultimately for all eternity. In doing this, God will glorify himself in magnifying his divine justice and righteousness and holiness. There are only two paths in this world. There are only two sides. The story is being written and the writer is God. But as characters 
in the great story of life, we must choose between righteousness and wickedness. We must choose to fight with or against the Lord. There is no neutral ground in this spiritual warfare. There is no Switzerland. Eternity is a long time. And you will be held responsible for what you do here on the earth. Hell is a real place. And heaven is a real place. And this truth is a double-edged sword. First, since the danger of suffering the loss of their eternal souls is real, and since life is fragile, and it can be taken from anyone in the blink of an eye, unrepentant sinners have great cause to fear. You have great cause to flee to the feet of Christ, because Jesus is the only hope they can have and the only place where they can find forgiveness and restoration to God's love and His mercy. But second, since there are only two destinations for mankind, and you, Christians, have been blessed with the light and revelation of the gospel, you have a responsibility to your fellow man to bear witness to that gospel. Your Christianity should be evident in your work. It should be evident in your home. It should be shining clearly in your marriage, in your thought life, and in your relationships, in your interactions with the world, and with those who are blind to the truth of Christ and His work. This is the fulfillment of the great commandment, to love the Lord your God, and the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you have a desire to see his salvation, to see mercy flood out upon him in the grace of Christ. You have a responsibility to share Christ with your neighbor. The gospel must be witnessed, and it's also the great commission of our Lord. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So the Lord is in control of all things, no matter how minor. This means that we need to be looking for what the Lord is telling us in the story. And in Esther 6, we are seeing the story of the gospel's great reversals. In our text this morning, Haman comes in proud, certain of the fulfillment of his greatest wish that Mordecai will be erected on the pyre that he has set for him. He elevates himself even higher in his heart at the king's question, and he leaves with his head covered humiliated, receiving prophecies of doom, his impending doom, from his own wife, friends, and wise men. What happens to Haman is consistent with, with Old Testament teaching. In Proverbs chapter 26, we read, He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays a deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred is covered by deceit, 
his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Haman is that man. He hates, he deceives, he digs a pit, he pushes, he rolls a stone. He hates those who are crushed by it. He hates the Jews. He hates Mordecai. This story, the story of Haman, is a type. The enemies of the gospel and the disobedient, rebellious ones are always secure in their intrigue when God brings them down. The earth before the fall. Then the Lord saw that the, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And the Lord destroyed them with the flood. At the Tower of Babel, Men came together to build a tower. And their thinking was, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Which was exactly what God had commanded them to do. To fill the earth and subdue it. So God confused their speech. Sent them wandering across the face of the earth. Exactly what they did not want to do. The Lord told Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. But they could not inherit the land of Canaan until the fourth generation. And this was the Lord's justification. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity... God would not allow the Israelites to come into Canaan until... His enemy's sin was mature until he'd given them every chance to repent. Pharaoh was born, sovereign ruler over Egypt. His word was as a God's word. But Pharaoh ended up the ruler over, over, a, dec over a decimated land with his wealth and might destroyed because he hardened his heart. There are many examples of this kind of this type of story in history and in God's word. God gives men every opportunity to increase their odds and get all their ducks in a row so that when their inevitable downfall occurs, they can never say that they didn't try hard enough or that they weren't given enough opportunities or chances or they really didn't make any sort of they can't make any sort of excuse that holds any water. God allows his enemies to do everything in their power to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish because God does not want them to have an excuse when they answer for what they've done. There is no excuse anyway. They owe their obedience and their servitude to God. He made them in the first place. But God is gracious and he gives them that opportunity. Also in this chapter, Mordecai comes into the king's gate 
anxiously awaiting to see the outcome of Esther's intercession. He's, he's been mourning. He's been clothing himself with sackcloth and ashes. He hasn't been able to go to the king's gate because of how he's dressed. He's not presentable because he's humbled himself. But now, the third day after the fasting has come, Esther had a banquet with the king and Haman. And he's come to the king's gate because he's interested in her welfare. And he wants to know the outcome. He comes in the fear of the Lord into the king's gate, anxiously awaiting to see the outcome of Esther's intercession and the Lord's plans for the future of the Jews. And then he's unexpectedly exalted and praised and given honor at the expense of his very greatest enemy, Haman. He must have been bewildered when Haman came to him with the king's horse and the king's robe and the king's crown and par paraded him throughout the city square and then return him safely to the king's gate. This story is also a type. The gospel promises always start with the weak and the small in the very beginning. Adam received the gospel after he had sinned, when he was hiding in the bushes from God. Noah was ridiculed for his obedience. He was the only man in the whole earth who the Lord found faithful. He was mocked for building an ark. The Lord justified him. Abraham left his hometown. He was a wanderer, a nomad, and his wife was barren. And yet the Lord gave him some of the greatest and most amazing promises. And the Lord has kept them. Isaac was not the firstborn. Neither was Jacob. Joseph was sold into slavery. But he won the birthright from Reuben. Moses was barely saved from being drowned at birth. And then after being raised in the palace, he spent 40 years as a fugitive and a shepherd in Midian. Our Old Testament reading this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 7. In verse 7, when Moses was talking to the people and telling them about why God chose them and how God took them, he says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all people. You were slaves. God uses small beginnings. He used the barren womb to bring salvation in Samson's story and in Samuel's story. Ruth was a Moabite Gentile widow who was drawn into the Messianic line. David was the youngest of Jesse's sons. He was only a boy when God had Samuel anoint him. And the examples go on and on and on. And Paul summarizes it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen 
and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. What it all boils down to for you is this. God is God. God is sovereign. God is great. And God is writing a story in which His will and His word, the Lord Jesus Christ, will have the final say. You are that story. You are His chosen people. You are the body of Christ. You've been called out of the wilderness of sin and the slavery of the devil. You've been set free all because of God's simple pleasure. You are saved because God loved you. What this means is that you must seek Him. And in seeking Him, you will find that you have found everything. You will find your purpose in this. You will find yourself, your true self, what God made you to be. You are His. So be His. Now all things are His. And those who foolishly bury their heads in the sand and refuse to bow the knee to Him, like Haman, are cheekily setting themselves up for their own, as their own masters, they will be brought down. But you, if you remain faithful to Him and humble yourselves before him, like Mordecai, will be lifted up. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon that was recently preached at Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this message, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website. ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.